Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I love data centers. We love data centers! Welcome and thank you for listening. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio, founder, CEO, and catalyst of Open Spectrum. What you can expect to find here on this podcast are fresh new conversations with some of the most successful, experienced, and fascinating players that I have met while working in the data center marketplace over the past decade. For those who already know me, this probably goes without saying, but I can assure you new listeners that there will be no marketing fluffery or sales BS here. In fact, this is specifically a no marketing fluffery and sales BS zone, at least for the next hour or so. My objective is pure. It's to simply share some raw, honest advice and entertaining stories that will hopefully teach you something new, maybe something thought-provoking and maybe even enjoyable about the industry that drives the brave new digital world that we live in today. Mr. Mark Del Bianco, thank you, sir, for uh, joining us here on the I Love Data Centers podcast. My pleasure, Sean. So, Mark, it's been great knowing you now for going on, I want to say, close to six years, five, six years. Uh, I think we were introduced via a mutual friend of ours uh, who actually was just thinking about recently. Um, uh, Mr. Anthony Hidalgo up in the Northeast. And yep. when he, yeah, when he introduced us, he said, this is the guy you have to work with. He's been in and around, uh, working as an attorney, uh, coaching, uh, the channel through contracts and contract negotiations for a long time. And you have proven to be, sir, one of the most humble, gracious and knowledgeable attorneys I think I've ever met in my life. Um, but for those who don't know you, Mark, can you uh, just briefly explain you know, what you do and, and how you do it? Sure. Um, for, for what's relevant to what we're talking about, I represent a fair number of channel partners or agents or sales representatives or indirect sales agents, whatever you want to be calling them. Uh, there seems to be a preferred term that changes every couple of years. Um, and I, I do also uh, represent some of the service providers in the telecom and data center space. So I sort of see both sides and am very familiar with the issues that come up and the development of the industry over the last decade. Yeah, and you kind of alluded to it in your answer, but that's not the only type of work that you do, right? You represent other types of clients? Yeah, I have been on my own uh, in the telecom space for 15 years. And in that time, I've seen it change dramatically. It started out sort of as uh, uh, you did telecom uh, work that was related to, you know, getting gigabits from A to B and some data center space and a few other things. Uh, and now it is completely um, changed. And you have a lot of other players in the space. You have the, the social media folks. You have a lot of over-the-top video folks. You have uh, the satellite providers of services. So you've, you've really had a big change over that time. And I do work – I don't do work in every vertical in the industry, but I do work in many of them. And I noticed you just put out a, a white paper or a, a conversation about drone companies and why drone companies need to be represented and have liability insurance and whatnot. So I, I take it they're also part of your um, client base as well? Um, yeah, the drone space 
I became interested in, I guess, about four or five years ago when it was just starting out. And it became very clear to me, although I think took a lot of other people some years down the road, uh, became very clear that really what drones were going to be important for was as mobile data acquisition platforms and that they would have to be combined with other pieces of a communications network to get that data somewhere and get it worked on and, and processed and made into some sort of useful product that was actionable by the companies in the, uh, in the drone uh, vertical. So that's how I got interested in that, and I still maintain that it is an area that's going to grow, but truthfully, the regulatory um, slowness, shall we say, of the FAA has really hurt the industry in the U.S., and a lot of the industry's gone overseas. Interesting. Well, let's let's put a, a cliff note or a, a bookmark in that conversation to speak when we're done with the podcast, because I've got a handful of drone clients that um, I love to pick your brain out and potentially make some introductions too. But um, what I noticed as I was digging through just prepping for this call is you have been an attorney for my entire life. So you've been in the industry for 38 years, which uh, hats off to you, my friend. Um, well, well, thank you. And I uh, had the same thought. I, Sean, I had the same thought earlier this week when I was listening to the podcast that you. And uh, it was Rich Miller had yeah. uh, had done where where you were talking about something, and I did the math and realized you were born in the year I got out of law school. Yeah, that's um, funny. So let let's go back to law school. What where did you grow up? You know, let's go pre law school. Where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up pretty much in the Washington D.C. area. I was born there. Uh, my dad was a communications engineer, which is what started my interest in communications. Um, and we did, as a kid, because his projects were all over the place, we lived overseas a couple of times. And that was very, very um, influential in sort of my thinking and, and my schooling. But I ended up in law school, um, not as a communications engineer. And so what what sparked your interest in law? I mean, why, why go that track? Um, it was... I think part of it was having lived overseas and seen places where there really wasn't any rule of law. And part of it was back at that point, um, a lot of people that came out of sort of science, social sciences and what everybody would consider um, um, the the uh, fluffier subjects. And my background was I was a history major. People came out and if they looked around and if they didn't, really have anything they wanted to do. A lot of people went to either grad school or law school, and I had more of an interest in law, so I went to law school. And how did your legal career kind of steer you towards the technology industry? I mean, were, were, did you start out working for a firm that put you on those projects, or in what way did no, you? No, actually, it was, it was uh, completely by accident. I accepted a job with the antitrust division of the United States Department of Justice, ended up in the appellate section uh, as my first job out of law school. And that appellate section actually represented the FCC in or represented the United States as a separate statutory respondent in cases where the uh, there were challenges to FCC regulations and <clears throat> We ended. I ended up working on a number of FCC cases in the early '80s, including the breakup of the of uh, AT and T. So 
that's what sparked my interest. And then I see that you you were a professor at Catholic University for some time. I did. I taught a for about five or six years. I taught a seminar on international telecommunications regulation uh, that was offered in Catholic's communications law program. They were the only school, I believe, except maybe for the University of Indiana, that offered a uh, communications-specific uh, program for their law school graduate. Interesting. Um... This is a totally random question, but I have a cousin of mine who is now in the uh, JA of the Army. Um, so, uh, what is it, J, J, Juris, Juris, I'm going to butcher it. Jag but, uh, yeah, Judge, the JAG Corps Judge, for the Army. Yeah, Judge Advocate General. Yeah, there you go. That's what it so, he was at Catholic University at the same time frame that you were there. His name is uh, Christopher Hartnett. Does that name ring a bell at all? It does not. It does not. But the, <clears throat> that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> the class, the classes that uh, that I taught tended to be, you know, no more than about ten or so, because it was a very um, uh, narrow focus subject within the communications program. Gotcha. Well, shout out to my cousin Chris, who's serving serving our country as a, a JAG right now overseas. Um, He's now captain, so we call him Captain Chris, which we get a big kick out of. But um, so at what point did you decide that you didn't want to continue working for a big firm uh, and kind of go off on your own? And what what kind of led to that? Well, um, I was I guess it was uh, after I left the Justice Department, I worked for about a dozen years doing international trade. Um, the anti-dumping and countervailing duty cases that, that people hear about. And back around 96, I um, was at a big firm and was not happy with the group that I was in and, or the work that I was doing. So I was getting ready to leave. And they, the, the HR folks suggested that I talk to the communications group because my background, you know, I, I did have a background in that. And so for seven years, I had a wonderful time in the communications group at Skadden Arps here in D.C. Uh, unfortunately, towards the end of that period, you had the um, dot-com crash. And what that meant was that for firms that did a lot of deal work, which Skadden did and still does, there was a real uh, pain point because the work dropped off, the deals dropped off, the dot-com boot crash um, really took a toll. And so the communications group went south. And uh, I started looking around and it became clear that there was not a lot of opportunity in the Washington area or even outside of the Washington area uh, for senior communications attorneys who didn't have a very large book of business. Um, so I ended up deciding to just go out on my own, and uh, it was a scary thing at the time and remained um, somewhat scary for a while. But after you know a few years, you kind of get your feet, and I, I've had a very good uh, run, very much enjoyed it, and I like the people that I've met. I've done a lot of things that I would not have been able to do had I stayed at a large firm, and uh, I'm quite happy with the decision. 
Well, my hat goes off to you and all those independent attorneys that have left to start their own firm, because at the end of the day, what you did was very entrepreneurial, right? You had to go it on your own and uh, eat what you kill and yep. figure out the logistics of starting and running your own business. So congratulations, yes. my friend. Well, thank you. It's I, In many ways, I think it's a lot harder for attorneys because unlike many people that go off and start their own business, they basically get no training. You know, it's not like attorneys went to business school or in law school, they gave you a course in how to run, how to set up a practice and, and run it. It's people are, attorneys are generally uh, very much out on their own and set in setting that up. Now it's changed in the last 15 years. There's much more of a focus and there are law schools offering those kinds of courses and stuff like that. But uh, when, when I went out 15 years ago, there was not a lot of support uh, for the idea of a, a solo attorney with a regional or national practice. Well, the primary topic that we're going to dig into here in a bit is GDPR, but I've got to scratch my own itch uh, because I I am an entrepreneur and have been one for a very long time. But if you could kind of go back and talk to yourself uh, back when you first started the practice, what, what are a couple key insights that you would give yourself or any attorney for that matter who's leaving a big firm and trying to start their own thing uh, that you think might might have helped you as you were getting your your feet? underneath you? I think probably the best thing would have been to take a course or two or get some help with marketing, because that is where lawyers are just not trained and generally not very good. I was very lucky because I had a, a large network that I had never used for marketing, but was able to figure out how to use to, to market my services. Um, I think the idea that law is a business was is obvious now. Twenty years ago, fifteen years ago, it was still something that many lawyers um, fought against because they viewed law as a profession, and so they didn't want to get their hands dirty in running a business. And I, I think that I was as guilty of that as many people are, and that's probably something that held me back at the beginning. So, what were some of the early marketing? Um, uh, tactics and or or um, approaches that you used that proved to be successful? Um, honestly, the ones that have proved to be the most successful in, <clears throat> in my uh, experience have been working with existing clients, doing good work, getting them to make introductions for you to other people. I mean, that's how I met you. Uh, and going to industry um, conventions just to be around the people that are potentially your client um, and to talk to them and to get to know them on a personal basis so that when they decide they need an assistance from a lawyer, they will call you. I mean, it can take years. It's not a, you know, it's not a selling thing where you're, you're going and saying, you really need my services today. It is much more of a relationship-based thing. Um, and what I found, and this is sort of the flip side of your question, Sean, what I found that did not work was many of the traditional things that they tell you in big law firms that you should do to get your name out there. Things like writing articles, 
uh, writing, writing um, even you know articles in um, sort of more popular magazines, much less law review articles, and giving speeches. You know, they, the, there's always been this encouragement of go out and give a talk to show you're an expert on something. Depends who you're talking to. That's basically the, the thing that they don't teach you and you need to think about and that I found out. Um, if you want to portray yourself as an expert to people that are, are potential clients, that's great. If you want to go out and give a speech about, for example, GDPR to a, a group of lawyers or accountants, that's probably not so great. So unless you're very lucky, nothing's going to come of that. That's what I learned. Um, you want to be in front of the people that really you can help and getting, figuring out who those people are and getting them to recognize that you can help them and that they need help is, I think, the key uh, to successfully marketing your services. I mean, you've got to be good, but you've got to let people know that you can help them. Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of hit on the basic core tenets of what makes successful salespeople successful, right? It's it's building a vast network, uh, having trust in uh, relationships, trusting relationships, uh, not pushing anything until someone actually needs something and going that extra mile and delivering great, great service and great product uh, time after time with those who you've developed those relationships with. And then the last and at least is asking for that referral. So after someone's like, wow, this was awesome. Um, asking, great, who do you know that might also need need my help and need my services? So it's yeah. it's uh, awesome that you learned that on your own so quickly. Um, it takes many people a lifetime to, just to figure out those core basic tenets. Well, I appreciate that. I have to tell you, it did take a while. I won't I won't say I knew it overnight. But I did read a lot of uh, marketing and sales books just to try and figure it out. And honestly, it was just the experience, watching where the business came from and where I was able to help people. Yeah, the, the tough part is, as I know very well, when I started my firm, um, not only are you responsible for doing the selling, but you're also responsible for doing the work on the back end, right? Yep. So it's kind of like a feast or famine. You're you're focused on the projects that are on hand, and then they dry up or they finish, and then you have to go out and find new business. So you're in a constant game of working and or trying to find new business, and then working and then trying to find the new business. And it's tough to make the time to do both at the same time, so that you have a steady flow of of projects to work on, and or just That's not right. over yeah overwhelmed with the amount of, of work on your plate. I often tell younger lawyers that are running their own practice now that it took me a while to learn it, but what you really need to be doing is the time that you're the busiest is when you should be doing the marketing so that your next projects are coming in right when the existing ones are finishing up. Yep. Um, all right, man, let's, let's dig into, thank you for all that. That was, that was great. I appreciate, um, those lessons learned. I know that our, our listeners will as well. Uh, but let's dig into GDPR and the, the topic at hand here. I first came across it, um, for what it's worth when I was speaking with a client of mine, uh, who is a CTO for a, um, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical company. I think this was about two, th two and a half, three years ago. And he started telling me about this new regulation coming down and 
how it's going to wreak havoc in the industry and how people are going to have to spend a ton of time on it. And this specific company had a global footprint. So it was going to mean that they had to re-architect all of their infrastructure and spend a ton of money doing so just to become compliant. Um, and when he told me the fine that was going to be offered, which was something like $40 million or 4% of your total revenue as a company, I near fell out of my chair. But the first question I had that came out of that, which hopefully we can address here, is like, how in the world is this going to be uh, enforced? But before we get into that, what the heck is GDPR, Mark? And can you explain to our listeners just kind of some basic tenets of what the hell it is and why companies should care? Sure. Uh, the GDPR stands for uh, the General Data Protection Regulation. It's a new data privacy and protection law that was adopted by the European Union. It was actually adopted a couple of years ago, and it went into effect May 25th of this year. And it basically re replaces and expands on the existing EU data protection law, which was enacted back in 1996. Um, so what it does is it regulates the processing, and I'll talk about processing in a minute, but it regulates the processing by any individual, any company, or any organization of the personal data that relates to individuals who are located in the EU. So let me break that down a little bit. First of all, according to the EU, it applies to any organization anywhere in the world or any company or person anywhere in the world that intentionally offers products or services to persons in the EU. And that's not just EU citizens, but people that are located in the EU. So for example, technically it covers American GIs that are stationed in Germany and are contacting American companies and giving them personal data. It also applies to any company that collects, stores, or processes data, personal data for EU individuals. So it doesn't apply to the data of companies. It doesn't apply to the data of deceased people. But it's much broader than the existing EU law. It's certainly much broader than any existing uh, American law, whether federal or state. So any company that has a global reach, like the a healthcare company that you were just talking about is going to be affected by it and is going to have to um, be in compliance with it starting May 25th of this year. But um, that gives you a little bit of the background of, of what it is as to when and how it's going to be enforced. Nobody's quite sure yet. So is there anything written that speaks to how it's going to be enforced? I mean, this, this seems like a lot of people are kind of running around with their heads cut off trying to find a solution to something that doesn't have um, any way to be enforced. I guess I'm just kind of bamboozled well, and baffled. No, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it doesn't have any mechanisms for enforcement. It does have mechanisms for enforcement. Uh, it's just that many well the mechanisms are you you can be fined you can make complaints to and there can be fines imposed by the uh, european the eu data protection board which is sort of a global eu um entity kind of 
comparable, say, to our Federal Trade um, Commission, the FTC, or each European Union member has its own data protection authority, or DPA, and you can think of those as the equivalent of, say, a state attorney general's office or a state consumer protection office, whatever you know, particular American state has. So either the, D the DPA of a member country or the EU's data protection board can enforce the law. The problem is that like many companies that are covered by the law, uh, the member states kind of pushed off getting everything ready for the law. So their data, their um, DPAs don't really have a lot of all their processes in place. Some of the countries haven't even passed laws authorizing um, the DPAs at the level that will be necessary to enforce <clears throat> the GDPR because that will require a lot more enforcement than the existing uh, privacy law of the EU did. So the mechanisms are there, but when I say nobody knows exactly how they're going to work, it's because the law is so new and the processes that the DPAs are going to follow are so new. They're just now beginning to grapple with all these issues. And there have been, I don't believe there have been any substantial decisions um, regarding the American companies that have been um, covered by it. There have been lots of complaints filed with DPAs against the big American giants like Facebook or Google, but there haven't been any real decisions, and there certainly haven't been any decisions against smaller companies. So exactly how all of this is going to work, it, nobody's just quite sure yet. So let's uh, back up just a bit and speak to, like, what was the purpose of GDPR? Like, what it... To what end does this uh, regulation serve? The GDPR was kind of an outgrowth of a lot of developments over the last 20 years since the EU last changed its privacy laws. You have to understand the EU has more of a culture of data privacy and individual privacy than the United States does. Um, a lot of that is a reaction to their experience in World War II with the way that individual data was misused and used to categorize them and, and you know, send them out of the country and, and uh, so on, kill them. Um, so there is a different culture, and the GDPR was just kind of the outgrowth of a variety of, of issues they, that had arisen in the EU over the last 20 years, and it was all kind of pulled into the GDPR. And they view, the EU views the GDPR as a, basically an example for the rest of the world to follow. And what, what specific data is, falls into this um, kind of catch-all regulation? What's, what specific data are they concerned about protecting? Every kind of data that is personally identifiable, or even if it is not personally identifiable, if it is able to be combined with other data that renders both of them personally identifiable together. Um, <coughs> sorry. 
Um, so examples of personal data that's covered by the law would be a name, a home address, an email address, um, an identify, identification card, you know, national identification card or credit card number, location data, um, for example, location data related uh, or provided by the mobile phone, an internet protocol address, a cookie ID, uh, the MAC identifier of a mobile phone, and then data held by a doctor or hospital. Um, but there are lots of other examples. Those are just kind of a, a list that I've given off to clients to make them think about it, because clearly there are data there that are not what we might think of as personal data, but that can be combined with other information and made very personal. So that's I mean, basically anything that you either associate with a name, uh, a named person, or that can be associated would be considered personal data. And that seems to be a pretty large blanket um, that almost any company doing any kind of marketing online or or um, uh, online advertising, uh, you know, you mentioned healthcare, obviously, uh, would play into that. Anyone doing any kind of uh, selling to citizens in Europe online, I mean, it, it seems to cover a ton of different industries, not just healthcare. And it seems a lot of the news that I hear is as this relates to the healthcare industry, but from the sounds of it, it's it's much broader than just that. Yeah, that, that's Absolutely right. Um, and I don't have very many clients with connections to the healthcare industry, but I have clients in a lot of other verticals that suddenly woke up six months ago and discovered that they were going to be covered by it. I, I think if you were talking with a healthcare CTO two and a half years ago who was thinking about this, he was way ahead of the rest of the American uh, companies because. Even the really big ones started looking at this maybe a year, maybe a year and a half ago. But many of my clients that are smaller and did not, you know, thought they weren't going to be affected or didn't really want to deal with it, didn't start looking at this until the February, March time period this year. And then many of them found out to their chagrin that they were actually going to be covered and they had to scramble to come into compliance as soon as they could. So that raises one of the questions I had for you, because I've heard from a handful of uh, IT managers that it's actually almost impossible to be fully compliant with GDPR, and that it's somewhat obvious that those who created this regulation were non-technical individuals who didn't understand the realities of data and how data is stored and processed and um, and databases in in general. Have you heard anything of the ilk like that? I have not. I mean, I've certainly heard the complaint, um, and, and I think probably everybody involved agree with it. That the people that drafted the GDPR were generally not themselves technologists. They did consult with IT folks, but you know they didn't have great backgrounds in technology. So I'm sure they've made a, a few mistakes, which may be corrected down the road. Um, but most of the um, 
complaints that I've heard to date about the GDPR go not so much to the technical issues, but to the fact that if, in fact, it's going to be um, fully enforced, it probably puts a crimp in a lot of the online business models, particularly the ad-based models and those that require persistent cookies and things like that, where you're basically using the personal information of your customers or users and monetizing it largely without their knowledge or permission. Um, I think that's where you're probably going to see some of the biggest disconnects in the next six months to a year. And it would not surprise me if the EU decided that some of the larger American companies' lines of business were incompatible with the GDPR as it's presently interpreted. And whether that means that some of those lines of business have to be radically under uh, radically revised or dropped, I don't know. But yeah, I do think that there there are lots of complaints about the GDPR requirements being inconsistent with a number of largely American companies' business practices. Interesting. And I, I, I'd have to imagine that in conjunction with the uh, news around Facebook um, and the data that's been gathered and shared within that medium, I've seen a massive uptick in you know, all the different websites that I go to are, are feeding me disclaimers and um, different documents that they want me to read and agree to and abide by before you can even start leveraging this, the website. Um, I wonder to that extent, like how, how many companies are actually taking this seriously uh, and if people are running the numbers, truly running the numbers on like what their what their real risk is as it relates to having to make the changes and what the cost would be of making the changes versus the risk involved with them actually getting caught versus uh, you know when they may actually be held accountable and if it's even worthwhile for them to look into making any adjustments or changes uh, to become compliant. Yeah, I I think any company that has uh, a substantial and uh, a substantial number of customers in the EU has got to be making that calculation. Um, and some of them have decided it's not worth it. I noticed in the first week or two after GDPR went into uh, effect. A number of American news sites, particularly uh, sort of the online versions of some newspapers, um, announced that they were blocking users in the EU because they did not believe that it was either worth – it was something that becoming GDPR compliant was something that they could cost-effectively do or perhaps even do it all. And so they just you know, announced essentially they were withdrawing from serving EU customers. I do think there are others that have made the calculation that they're going to continue to serve EU customers and just keep their head down and hope they don't become a target of any kind of a uh, an enforcement action. But I don't know that that's a particularly smart way to go because all it takes is one or two complaints from knowledgeable 
uh, EU consumers, and some data protection authority in one of those countries can come down on them like a ton of bricks. So, so you, you brought ahead. up a, you brought up an interesting um, question that also has popped up in my conversations around GDPR, which is I've been told, and I'm not sure if this is true or not, that if I am a EU citizen in the United States. Um, and I visit a hospital here in the U.S., then whatever hospital I'm attending must be GDPR compliant for, if they choose to admit me um, and deliver any services to me. And if that's the case, then to the point that you made about companies blocking EU citizens from using their sites abroad, if someone is simply using a domain that's hosted in the U.S. and I'm an EU citizen that's using that's maybe visiting that site from the United States, then there's no way that they'll know if I'm an EU citizen or not based on the domain if I'm visiting from a, a local, um, uh, you know, have a local IP address in the United States. Let me, let me unpack that. Uh, okay. Because you've got two different examples there, Sean. The first one, actually, I'm not, I'm not sure who told you that, but it's wrong. Uh, that is actually the the idea of, of an EU citizen being in the U.S. and having to go to an American hospital and somehow the American hospital then coming under GDPR. That's not correct. That is, in fact, one of the um, hypotheticals about which there has been a fair amount of discussion. And <clears throat> the GDPR only applies to EU citizens to the extent they're doing something and providing information in the EU. Now, you can argue about the second one where they are providing information from, as you explained, providing information or personal data while they're in the United States from a U.S. IP address. In theory, they are not, they're also not covered by the GDPR at that point because they're outside, uh, they're not located in the EU when they provide the personal data. Uh, you can contrast that with the example I gave a few minutes ago about an American GI on, a German, on an American base in Germany who, even though he's not an EU citizen, would be covered by the GDPR, because, at least as to the data he discloses while he's in Germany. If he comes home and starts or continues to use an American website while he's in, in the U.S., then that data that he provides during that period would not be covered by GDPR. Interesting. So, that, is, that is a very key point for people to understand that. Um, yeah. 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 So if I'm a U.S.-based data center provider, let's just maybe try to tie this back to the data center industry. Mm -hmm. um, and none of and all my facilities are in the United States, or at least in North America, let's say, then there really isn't too much concern that I would have about falling under any kind of GDPR um, compliance or regulation. No, that's not that's not going to be accurate at all. And the reason is <clears throat> that you have to go into the minutiae of the GDPR, but what the GDPR does is it divides everybody that holds or processes data into two categories. You're either a data processor or you're a data controller. A controller is the, the company that gets the data from the individual 
and uses it for its own purposes. A processor would be any company that the controller hires and that processes the data in some way. It could be using it in payroll data. It could be using it in a scientific study. It could be providing uh, Zendesk, which provides outsourced help desk for many, many companies in the industry and, and a number of data centers is a processor because it it collects data for its customers and give, does with the data what they require. Those customers are all controllers. So in a data center situation, most often the data center is going to be a controller, uh, excuse me, a processor of other companies' data. So the data center, if its customers are themselves covered by the GDPR and are controllers of data, they would, as part of the GDPR, be required to ensure that all their processors are GDPR compliant, and they would go to those processors and they will give them a an addendum to the contract. Or many of the many of the data centers have already developed their own um, terms of service or, or amendments that say we are D, we are GDPR compliant. Here's you know here's how and why. Um, so even if a data center is in the U.S., it's almost certainly going to be uh, entering into contracts that require it to be GDPR compliant because any multinational American company that's located in that data center is going to have to be GDPR compliant and therefore will require the data center to be GDPR compliant. Um, in addition to the – go ahead. Yeah, so if I'm digital realty, though, right, and I, I'm looking at this from or Cyrus One, who are just pure delivery of power and space, right? Right. Primarily mm -hmm. wholesale power and space. They're not touching the data, per se, uh, of their customers. How, you know, how could they, would, would they still fall under that GDPR compliance? Most. Most likely, they're not going to fall directly, but almost certainly they are going to be contacted by their customers because GDP and, and required to sign something that says they are GDPR compliant. And, and part of the reason is even if you're not touching the data, the GDPR requires controllers of data. So let's just take an example. If a company We'll call it uh, Open Spectrum. Let's say Open Spectrum is a multinational company, and it has its own GDPR obligations clearly covered by the GDPR, um, and it's using a data center in South Carolina. The GDPR requires that any entity subject to the GDPR that is a controller also have in place technical, physical, and other um, security protocols to protect the data. Obviously, if the data center is not touching the data in electronically per se, um, it still is the entity that provides some of the technical, certainly all of the physical security, and guards the physical access to the boxes that that are processing the data. So more than likely. It's going to have to, again, ensure that its uh, technical and security measures are adequate to meet GDPR. Now, 
if they meet some of the other standards, you know, for a tier one data center or something, that's probably going to be enough and, and they won't have to do anymore, but they, they will still more than likely have to amend their contracts so that the controller that is their customer uh, gets the assurance it needs to be GDPR compliant. This seems like a pretty broad um, and hard to define. Like there, there's no specific definitions as to what that data center provider is responsible for delivering to the customer if they are the, the controller. Um, just I'm Yeah, I think, I think what's going to happen is as the GDPR is implemented, and as you get some investigations and decisions by the European Data Protection Board and by the uh, um, member state DPAs, you will have a better idea of what the various terms require, and you will probably find that you know meeting meeting certain uh, standards body standards, the internationally recognized standards is going to be enough to be GDPR compliant if you're a data center and you're not really touching the data, but you're providing the physical and technical controls for access to electronic access or physical access to the data. Interesting. Very interesting. So um, one other question here is how can, how does the EU even have the right to pass laws that are regulating how American companies uh, operate as it relates to EU citizens? Um, that is a, an often asked question by clients. <laughs> and the answer is that for years, um, jurisdiction has been based on territory. And as the electronic networks have developed, that concept has been both in the United States and in the EU, has been um, given a lot of flexibility. So recently we just had a decision where the Supreme Court said that, that it, it actually got rid of a decision it made 20 years ago uh, that said that a state could only tax an online business if the online business only ha also had a location in the state. Supreme Court a couple of weeks ago said, now we made a mistake when we said that states can tax businesses that are located outside the state as long as there's some sort of substantial connection or nexus. That's sort of what the EU is claiming to be doing here. There's been no challenge, no decision of any court that says they can do that. Um, but it's basically very similar to what our Supreme Court did. And they basically said, Anybody that any company that is doing business in the EU by advertising in the EU or uh, by putting a website, even if the website's hosted in the United States, if you put a website out there that's in one of the EU languages, we're going to take that as prima facie evidence that it's and and aimed at uh, at EU folks. And if you're trying to sell to people in the EU, we don't care where you're physically located. That's the reasoning they use, I think probably, I mean, certainly no country that I'm aware of has challenged it yet, uh, you know, in in a, an international forum. I'm not sure what, that they will. I think down the road, every country will probably move in that direction. 
Are there any existing precedents that you're aware of that are kind of corollary to what we're what we're dealing with here with GDPR? In terms of jurisdiction or in terms of the substantive coverage of the privacy right? I'm, I'm going to say both. <laughs> okay. Well, on, on jurisdiction, the, the, the U.S. tax case that I just mentioned, that the Supreme Court decided a month ago, um, yeah. that, and there's a whole bunch of cases like that in the U.S. and in the EU, where generally countries have been moving away from a territory-based idea of jurisdiction, uh, or a physical territory-based idea of jurisdiction, and towards uh, jurisdiction based on deliberately interacting with people located in that country or in the EU. So that, yeah, there's a lot of precedent for that idea. The idea of a broad, very, very broad data privacy uh, law, it's it's a different in a difference in in uh, quantity, not not so much quality. Basically, there were a lot of ideas ab about privacy and how people should have control of their own data that have been percolating, you know, for 25 years in many countries. And the GDPR kind of just pulled it all together. So there's not nothing as broad as the G GDPR on privacy, but individual pieces of the GDPR, I think it's fair to say, have been parts of EU law and the law of other countries for a decade or more. The GDPR just pulled all those things together gotcha. and strengthened, strengthened the, uh, or at least looks like it will be strengthening the protections for individuals and their private data. So I take it some of this has to have um, triggered, or maybe not, maybe it's just the, the nature of the times that we live in today. But um, I've been hearing about the California data privacy laws that have been um, enacted uh, somewhat recently from my, my friends and, and family back in, in California. Uh, and business associates back in California. What what can you speak to as it relates to that? The uh, the California law, which many people are calling GDPR light, um, was passed earlier this year, and <clears throat> kind of like uh, GDPR, there is a very long period between the passage of the law and the actual effective date of the law. It doesn't go into effect until. January 1st, 2020, which is not quite two years after it was passed. Um, it is, it will be, when it goes into effect, the most, um, the broadest and, and the most protective uh, individual data privacy law in the United States. It will be uh, more protective for California citizens than federal law is and more protective than the law of any other state. Um, the flip side of being protective is that it could also be described as more onerous for businesses than any existing American privacy law. Um, 
it is one that everybody's just right now starting to look at it um, and put into place or begin to put into place uh, ideas that will help them be compliant when it comes into effect. Um, obviously, companies, it's not as um, draconian as the GDPR is. And so companies that are GDPR compliant will definitely have a head start in figuring out what they need to do. Um, and if they have chosen to be GDPR compliant across their entire business, as opposed to just those parts of the business that arguably touch the EU, um, they probably will be okay. I have not yet done a full study of the California law, although I'm starting to get questions from clients about it. But if you're com my sense is that if you're compliant, fully compliant with GDPR across your business, the California law is not going to be uh, a much of a change or a problem for you. However, there are a lot of American companies that either are not affected by GDPR or are taking that risk that you described a little while ago and deciding not to come into compliance with GDPR and because they think it's either very low chance they're going to get caught or because the GDPR, excuse me, the EU is such a small part of their business that they don't want to make changes just for that. Those companies more than likely are going to be covered by the California law and they, they will have uh, a tougher time coming into compliance and probably need to be thinking about it already because, you know, at this point, there's just over a year and a half. What, what are the uh, implications for those who may not be compliant? Do you, have you dug into what the threats are just as GDPR has their, you know, 4% of revenue or 40 million, whatever it might be. Right. I, I don't know. I have not actually looked at what the penalties proposed in the law are. Um, I don't know whether they just, ta they changed the obligations and left the existing um, penalties in place or whether they increased the penalties in addition to increasing the privacy rights and uh, obligations of the companies. But um, I do know that there are now, well, they did add specific statutory damages. I don't know how much um, for noncompliance. What that means is statutory damages refers to uh, a fixed amount like that that is um, collectible by anybody who is harmed regardless of the actual amount of the harm. So if even <clears throat> if there were a violation, somebody released your personal data or misused your personal data, um, and you could not show a specific amount of damage, the statutory damage would kick in. And, and usually that's something like 1,000 or 2,000 or 5,000. It's not usually a very high effect, amount. Um, and it, you, it substitutes for proof of actual damages. So when you get a statutory damages, if you combine that sometimes with class actions, you can have a very big club against uh, a potentially uh, non-compliant company. Interesting. Yeah, and it's um, 
as I've read a little bit about it in the notes that I took before our call, it basically is going to make it such that people can opt out of having their data that's collected from different, you know, let's just say social media sites. Um, they're going to opt out of having that data sold to a third party, which raises the whole question around business models that are just focused on driving um, eyeballs to a site specifically to monetize data in that such way. So, you know, I, I wonder right. what the re repercussions of this type of um, measure will be, you know, if it's, if you do opt out of having your data resold, then, you know, maybe you have to pay a monthly subscription fee to become part of, of such a network. Yeah. Um, you've raised a point, Sean, that we didn't address in connection with GDPR, but that is one of the most important with GDPR. And that is GDPR is an opt-in statute. So you as a company uh, that wants my data, you have to tell me all the reasons why you want my data and what you're going to do with it, who you're going to disclose it to. And I have to opt in. You cannot automatically have a box that says, if you don't check this, we're going to use it. You have to have an opt-in that the individual affirmatively agrees to all the uses you want to make. And if you do not identify a particular use and you down the road want to change your business model and use the data for that, you have to go back to every person whose data you have and get them to opt into that new use. And if they don't, you can use the data. So it will make companies plan ahead in terms of what they're going to do with the data that they collect. Um, and then it also imposes additional requirements that you can only keep the data for so long as it's necessary for the reasons you originally got it. And you can only use it for the reasons that you were given permission for. So it very much expands the privacy rights of the EU individuals, and it's being followed in the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018. So that's, that's going to be a substantial change. And as you noted, that makes it very difficult and may well be inconsistent with um, some of the ad-based business models like Facebook. Interesting. And that then ties into one of the other questions I had about, uh, about the topic, which is um, the right to be forgotten, right? So individual consumers through GDPR and, and this new California um, Act have the right to be forgotten. What, what does that actually amount to and what does that mean? Um, actually, it has two different facets. One is for individuals that are actual customers um, or, or users of particular websites or apps or something, those people, you have the right to go in and require them to show you all the data they have on you, and you can require them to correct anything that you think is incorrect and to erase uh, any data about you that you don't want them to keep. That's one aspect of it. The other aspect that has gotten much more publicity of is the 
experiencing of the right to be forgotten through search engines like Google and to other public news sources. And that one is, that is clearly going to be a big area of contention going forward for a long time because there's a tension there between the public's right to know and a person's right to be forgotten. And those are going to be decisions that are very, very uh, fact-specific, and we will probably see lots of those types of decisions over the next few years and have a better idea of what the right to be forgotten means in the news and publicity context. But in the, in the uh, business context, where companies have data from individuals that were either their customers or their users, I think it's going to be a lot less contentious. And both the GDPR and the California Privacy Act give a lot more control to the individuals whose data is, is involved. And I think that's probably right. It's probably what most of us would want. So uh, another interesting conundrum that I thought through as it relates to this topic is does this does GDPR also um, mean that individual state government agencies and federal government agencies must also be compliant? You mean American federal yep. American states? Yep. Um, in theory, yes, it would, uh, but it's not. I mean, you'd have to think it through because it's not clear how much interaction American states and governments have with individuals in the EU in terms of getting private, private data. Well, but yes. So, so let's just think about this through the State Department, right, and or DOD um, and the data that is gathered on, you know, just citizens in general around the world, right? I, I can't fathom a scenario in that the EU would ever go after, you know, the NSA or the CIA or the FBI for maintaining records of EU citizens and having them opt in, you know, not not having the right to opt in uh, for for them having access to and or holding that data. I mean, you think I'm wrong there? No, I was thinking more of uh, of agencies that have data in the business context. So the, what I was thinking of, for example, was um, a state land records agency that has data on an individual that owns um, a house in Beverly Hills or something like that. Um, you're talking almost about governmental functions like uh, issuing passports or immigration control or uh, intelligence operations. Um, that, honestly, I have not looked at. I know that there are specific provisions in the GDPR that apply to public authorities in the EU, which includes you know, courts and government agencies and so on. I don't know what, what or how how they would apply the GDPR to American governmental agencies. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, 
What what other questions have I not asked you that I should ask you for our listeners to get a better understanding of how GDPR may or may not um, affect the businesses that they're in if they're either you know a, a service provider or a enterprise customer uh, working in and around those types of of clients. It's I think it's. Uh... You've pretty well covered most of the issues. For service providers, they're almost certainly going to be processors. They may, in some cases, also be controllers if they're trying to get individuals in the EU as customers. But in general, they're going to be processors, and so they'll be dealing with controllers and trying to get their uh, contractual obligations uh, in line with the requirements of the GDPR. but for others, and this includes a number of my clients who are providing services to individuals in the EU, whether it's uh, OTT video or um, telephone services, you know, uh, voice over internet or things like that, they are going to be both controllers and processors. And they, even if they think they have very small amount of businesses in the EU, they need to think about whether they want to run that risk uh, that you described earlier of not being compliant and being uh, the target of an investigation by one of the DPAs. Uh, Very much a a cost-based analysis that they need to think about hard. Definitely. Well, um, I encourage those who are listening, we will have posted on the page that this uh, this episode is listed, one of the white papers that um, Mark has written on this topic to dig further into it. So for those of you who want to read more, uh, you'll be able to read Mark, Mark Del Bianco's white paper on the topic uh, that, again, is going to be linked through in the show notes of the episode. Uh, so you can dig, dig deeper down this rabbit hole if you're interested. Um, I'm also going to see if I can pull on to a future episode and maybe even have you present for it, a, a database engineer <laughs> and architect who's kind of in the thick of trying to figure out how to make um, uh, the databases that they have that store all this data compliant with GDPR. Because I, I can only imagine that there's probably big issues taking legacy uh, database architectures and making them such that they can be compliant with these regulations. It's almost going to I would imagine require a complete overhaul and re-architecture of how companies store store data currently. Um, have you actually? Let me ask you, Mark. Have you talked to any uh, database engineers or any people who are in the thick of actually going through this and, and becoming compliant? Uh, I actually have, although not in the database space per se, but in the um, uh, Communicate telecommunication space, and the reason is that there are specific rules under the GDPR um, for where you can transfer personal data that is collected in the EU on EU individuals, where you can transfer and process that data, and they only allow transfer and processing of data in countries that, within them, that as, as the GDPR says have adequate privacy control. The United States is not one of those countries. So what you have to do is, in order for data to be transferable from the EU to the United States, 
the companies involved in the transfer and in the at, at the U.S. end, the companies that will be processing and storing the data have to be compliant with what's called the Privacy Shield Program administered by the Department of Commerce. And it's a, a series of hoops that you have to jump through that basically guarantee that your privacy policies <coughs> as a company are on a par with the requirements of the GDPR, even if the United States as a whole is not. And so I have had a couple of clients where we've had to re-architect their communications networks um, in order to ensure that data is actually collected in the United States and not in the EU, um, which means you know, re revising uh, uh, their, their network architecture um, because they will not be able to collect it in the EU and transfer it to the US, and they do all their processing in the US, so they have to create the, a network that does not uh, collect data in, in the EU. Interesting. Yeah, I would be very interested in the conversation with data center engineers about that and how and whether they're running into this issue. Yeah. So if if I'm a company now, what steps do I need to take to become compliant? Is is one of those steps specifically going to the agency and well, jumping through the hubs hoops to yeah. get a certification? Yeah, the, the paper that the paper that you mentioned, the white paper that I wrote to help some of my clients decide on their steps, um, that sort of sets it out. I mean, the first thing you do is you have to do is to figure out what data you have that is covered by the GDPR. Um, and then you have to look to bringing all of your contracts into compliance in addition to determining that your own operations are in compliance. Um, it, it can be very time consuming and for smaller companies, it's expensive but may not be that time consuming. So it really depends on each company's um, own factual situation. But if an American company is still trying to decide whether it's gonna begin looking at this, you're pretty late, particularly if you have any kind of uh, EU customer base, whether or not you've got an, op uh, an opportunity, excuse me, a uh, facility in the EU. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, given they haven't really quite figured out how they're going to actually enforce this this law, I don't know. I mean, are they late? Maybe maybe, maybe addressing it now gives them enough time while the EU is trying to figure out how they're going to enforce it. I think that is definitely a possibility. Um, the The real issue is going to be is one of their customers going to file a complaint because honestly the dpas in each country are going to go after the low-hanging fruit the low-hanging fruit is going to be big companies that are not that are not compliant and that you can figure that out very quickly by going to their website or by virtue of the fact that 20 of their customers have complained to the dpa um, that's who's going to be on their radar screen. So, yes, it is technically too late because you should have been in compliance by May 25th. But practically, uh, if smaller companies are looking at this now, they run little risk of 
being the target of an enforcement action right now, um, there was a really interesting survey done just before the GDPR went into effect. Um, I believe it was late April, so it was a month before it went into effect. And the International Association of Privacy Professionals, which is the uh, core organization for privacy professionals around the world, had interviewed 24 of the EU DPAs and as of late April 17 said they were not going to be ready for enforcement of the GDPR when it went into effect. So, yeah, you you do have some leeway because of the fact that the DPAs are not really on top of their game yet, but at some point soon they will be and they'll be coming after American companies and EU companies. Well, I appreciate the data dump. You've scratched my own itch, and I'm sure uh, the itch of many of our many of our listeners on the topic and gotten us up to speed. I would highly encourage anyone and everyone listening to also read through the white paper that's that's going to be posted on the website. Um, I think we've buried the topic at least for now. Uh, I have a couple other questions that I'd like to uh, throw at you and get your feedback on. Um, the first is what what is a technology that you've seen uh, or disruptive technology or just a, some kind of tech that you've experienced over the last couple of months that has surprised you or, or blown your mind? I'd have to say some of the AI applications that I've seen, it's not so much that I've personally experienced them, but I've seen, you know, like YouTube videos or read stories about them. I think that AI is coming and artificial intelligence is coming much faster than people understand and that it's going to be much more disruptive in the very short term than people are planning for. And I, I think that could cause real problem. What, what is one of the applications of AI that you heard about or read about that you are speaking to? Um, well, a good example is that um, I just read an article yesterday or today about one of the leading banks in Sweden that had um, started to use AI to automate a lot of its operations and had let 2,500 folks go, mostly in customer service and, uh, and uh, I believe it was real property management. <clears throat> so they went from being kind of an also-ran to being one of the more profitable banks in the space of a year. And now everybody, all the banks in, in Sweden are trying to replicate that. So it's, you know, it's a virtuous circle, but it's a virtuous circle with um, consequences that are bad for many people. So AI, yeah. both good and bad, is, is the takeaway I have, and it's going to be very disruptive. I wonder um, if the consumer consumers of the products of that bank feel that the AI, did, did the article address if the consumers of that bank have experienced any change in their experience with the bank? It didn't, and that's one of the problems that I see with AI is that it's measured pretty much by the people that want to implement it 
in order to decrease their costs or make their operations more efficient. And there is very little on the other side, very little um, way to measure or incentive to measure the gains or losses in quality for the target flash consumer. Yeah, I wondered as well. I mean, you may lose 2,500 or will be able to displace 2,500 employees and replace it with technology, but if the technology isn't providing that soft uh, touch and that high level of customer service, you're going to end up losing customers, <laughs> which is going to be detrimental to in the long run. Right. But in the short run, which is what many businesses think about these days, uh, if one of your competitor banks is decreasing its costs by more than 10% in six months and is um, becoming much more profitable, your shareholders are going to demand that you follow suit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Um, so another question I have for you is, what is a common misconception about uh, the industry that you are in delivering um, legal services? Delivering legal services. Um, the legal counsel, legal advice. A common misconception is that lawyers are not trying to help their clients solve problems. They're trying to uh, minimize risk and trying to be very uh, cautious. I, I think a good lawyer is able to balance or help the client make a choice that balances risk and potential reward and cost. Because one of the things in the industries that my clients are in and that I'm dealing with, there isn't a lot of black and white. Everything is gray. Everything is new. Uh, the best you can do is take your experience and give probabilities to the client. I mean, GDPR is a very good example. Um, for some clients, it may make no sense to become GDPR compliant as a business matter. For others, it makes, I mean, they just have to do it. There's no question, no matter what it costs, because it would be too difficult <clears throat> for them. So the, the misconception is that lawyers are not problem solvers. Roadblocks. And you can, as someone who's dealt with a number of attorneys uh, on both the client side and working with service providers, you can definitely tell on the phone with attorneys if they're problem solvers or roadblocks pretty quickly in, in how they address and the language that they use in addressing, um, you know, contract language. Those who work in a very binary uh, framework tend to not fully understand that a deal wants to get made by both parties and those who are simply trying to understand and seek to understand and figure out how they can work within the confines of a contract. Um, there just seem to be two different breeds and I, I'm not sure if that's training that they receive in law school or personality type or what, but um, I've almost found that there's two camps of attorneys, those who want to say no and lay their foot down um, despite, you know, industry best practice and those who are simply trying to understand and 
um, want to look at what industry best practices are and, and try to do what's the most prudent. And to your point, you know, give options uh, with waiting to their clients so that they can make the decision um, that best serves their business moving forward. Yep, I agree with you. I, I do think it's personality and not training uh, because I've known people that went to many, many different law schools. And as far as I can tell, there's there's no consistency from any law school as to which ones they're putting out. Um, the way that I describe what you just <clears throat> talked about is there are lawyers that would love to do nothing more than um, house closings over and over and over again because it doesn't require much thought. And there are lawyers <clears throat> for whom that would be awful, and they would much rather be dealing with new technologies and new issues because you get to make it up as you go along and use your judgment and help your client. So another uh, another question I have has to do with what was the most influential, you know, as the entrepreneur that, that you are, uh, but it doesn't even have to be when you decide to start your own firm, but when you were early on in your career, as I was an infant, uh, as we determined earlier on in this podcast, what was the most influential piece of advice that you received um, when you were just getting started? You know, honestly, I'm not sure <clears throat> that there was any particular piece of advice that was influential. However, I did have an antitrust professor when I was in law school. Uh, went on to have some fame. His name was Robert Bork. And he taught antitrust in a way that if you did not agree with him, he was a very smart man, but if you didn't agree with him, uh, he made you seem like you were an idiot. And about halfway through his class, I realized that he was very smart, but the reason he won all the arguments was he stated all the assumptions. So I learned from him that you have to challenge the assumption. And he, he, I never agreed with him, but that was the lesson I took away from law school, and it has proven very useful over the years that I've been a lawyer. That's very, uh, a very interesting piece of advice there. So give me, I don't know if you can on such short notice, but can you give me a practical application of that? Uh, yeah, I can. Um, about 20 years ago, when I was at a big firm, I was uh, working on a merger of two very, very large, uh, what we used to call RBOX, Regional Bell Operating Company. And uh, well, actually, it was an Arbok and a competitive carrier. And the competitive carrier had a lot of facilities around the world. The Arbok did not. And we were trying to convince the Justice Department that we needed to go ahead, uh, that they needed to approve it, and that there were no um, problems with it. And it turned out there was a problem because the RBOC was not allowed to provide, um, at that point, um, international, I think it was international, yeah. No, I'm sorry. They were not allowed to provide interstate service because <clears throat> they, they could only provide intrastate service. And they had some circuits that, if the merger went through, they would have been interstate. 
And so we were scratching our heads and thought we'd have to sell the facilities off. And then we, like, I took a step back and realized that if you actually, instead of delivering the traffic at the other end of that circuit, if you simply routed it on a longer path through permissible uh, facilities, you could deliver the traffic instead of handing it off in New York City, you could hand it off in Germany. And therefore, it became international traffic and did not run afoul of the uh, prohibition on providing uh, interstate service or long distance service, as it was called then. And so that's how it was resolved. Gotcha. So it's a good good lesson for people to think through is always challenge the assumptions. Um, and it, I have found that to be true on so many different aspects of my life is what, you know, what are the assumptions that we are operating under that we've either, you know, that goes back to topics that I've discussed on the podcast that have to do with putting in the self work, discovering, you know, who you are, why you think what you think and act the way you act uh, and challenging your own assumptions. You know, what, what were you taught when you were young? Uh, what are the limiting self beliefs that you may have, right. That may help op, you know, help, frame the way that you live your life and the decisions that you make throughout the day or week or month or whatever it might be. Um, because you can start to reprogram and rethink those things once you understand them, but don't just take those assumptions at face value. And that's actually gotten me in trouble fairly frequently when working in corporate America, <laughs> because I'm one to constantly challenge, challenge assumptions that are made. Like, why, why do we do it? Why are we doing it this way? This doesn't seem yeah. to make any sense whatsoever. Well, that's the way we've always done it. Well, have we ever considered doing it a better way or a different way? Um, well, the last question I have for you, Mark, is what was the, um, do, do you remember the experience you had when you first walked into a data center? Or what was the first data center that you walked into that you can recall? Uh, it was a small data center. I don't remember whose it was out in Ashburn, Virginia, near where I work. And I do remember going in and just being just so surprised at how clean and quiet it was and how many blinking lights there were <laughs> in all the racks. Yeah. How many years ago was that? Probably 20. Wow. Yeah, and Ashburn, Virginia now is the fastest growing, most dense data center market in the world. There's more net new capacity being built uh, in Ashburn than anywhere else on the face of the planet right now, which is absolutely you know, mind boggling. Um, so Mark, I got to ask you this, this very, very last question, I promise. But do mm -hmm. you, do you love data centers? I do love data centers and all the things that they allow people to do. I do too, man. I do too. Well, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to chat with me today. And for those of you who are listening again, we're going to have the, the white paper that Mark wrote on GDPR available on the website for you to, to download and, and check out yourself. Um, and Mark, if people want to reach out to you directly to ask questions or to inquire on your services, how can they find you and reach you? Uh, they can go to my website, which is mark at markdelbianco.com. Uh, or they can just give me a call on 301-602-5892.
There you have it, people. I hope this was informative for you. It was most definitely for me. And Mark, I appreciate you. And we'll be talking very soon. All right. Take care. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, the Data Center Collocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. And I think at this point, we've sold close to over 1,200 copies of the book. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.